0: 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 so from Philippians you want to go second. you want to turn left just a few pages probably to 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 and then left again to John chapter 4 again if you're using the blue Bibles it's 2nd Corinthians is 968 and John is 889 we're going to read the last part of Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. A man named William Carey was born in 1761 in England, and he was a very unlikely candidate for greatness. He lived in poverty, had very little formal education, grew up to be a a shoe repairman, and was unsuccessful in that adventure. Um, But in his 20s, Carey decided he might be a good candidate for ministry, so he went to the board uh, that he was involved with in England to try to apply to become a minister. And for two consecutive years, he, he was uh, dismissed. Uh, and because there's two specific reasons, you're boring and you're not a good teacher. That's just like the worst thing you can hear if you're trying to become a preacher. But Kerry was undeterred, and mostly because he had a heart for missions more than he did for preaching, so to speak. He had a heart for bringing Jesus to countries outside of England, those who really had no real representation of a church or knowledge of the gospel. But unfortunately, in the late 1700s, the early 1800s, there was a a level of discouragement given in England for missions. There was a sense that really there was no concern that the, the local church should have for the Outside world, and once at a meeting of ministers, imagine this, Carrie goes to present his ideas, specifically of traveling to India and to preach the gospel. And he was sort of rudely interrupted and cut down with this statement Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the lost, he will do so without you or me. This was by one of the mature ministers in the crowd. It's just hard to imagine how. This mature minister missed the heart of God somehow. At Kerry, again, very undeterred. He had maybe a, a few skills that weren't uh, very valuable, except for one, he was perseverant. And so he, two years later, he set sail for India, and he never returned for 41 years. His most famous quote, Expect great things for God attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, which is what Kerry did. He did expect great things for God, and so he attempted great things for God. He attempted to bring the, the gospel to India, which he did in many ways, and even though he had a great deal of disappointment and heartache during this time, he was he was met over and over by God in India throughout his 41 years. And he really opened the door to what we know now as the modern missions movement. In fact, Carey in most church history books is called the father of modern missions. He was the kind of the first person to break down to the door, and behind him, hundreds, if not thousands, of missionaries flowed out of the West into different places that didn't know the gospel. Prior to Kerry's departure in India to India, he realized he was going to need some financial support, some relational support, some, some just prayer support, and there weren't that many people he, he could go to, but he had one friend whose name was Andrew Fuller. And so before he left, he went to his friend Andrew and he said, Andrew, I'm going down into a pit, and I need you to hold the rope. I'm going to be lowered down into the, to this dark tunnel, and I can't be sure what I'm going to meet. I can't be sure what my, me and my family are going to meet in India, but I can't do it unless somebody's willing to hold the rope. Would you be willing to hold the rope? And Andrew Fuller was a man of his word. He held the rope for William Carey. William Carey doubtfully would have not been as successful without somebody holding the rope. And like Carrie, the Apostle Paul understood that he was a man called to be the person who went down into these pits. He's the one who left Israel and had all these missionary journeys. And he ended up in dark places. He's in a particularly dark place as he writes this letter in a Roman prison cell. And he needed people who would be willing to hold the rope. And the people who were unique in their generosity in their capacity in their willingness to hold the rope were the people in philippi and here at the very end of the letter he just wants to pour out his heart and to say thank you thank you for holding the rope thank you for being a partner that's the word he uses a couple of times in the greek to 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 take part in to to share in this ministry and so three things i want to mention here in this text is paul is rejoicing in their partnership Paul is rejoicing that their gifts really are pleasing to God, not just pleasing to Paul. And Paul is rejoicing ultimately in God's provision. So if you're a note taker, partnership, pleasing, and provision are the three things I want to talk about. First of all, let's just look at the partnership. He says it in verses 14 through 16. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That's the same word as partnership, to take ownership of my trouble. And you Philippians, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, which is when he brought the gospel gospel to Philippi, when I left that area, that region called Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me except for you. Even in Thessalonica, which was the next city over, they sent help time and again. Paul's rejoicing over this special partnership. He remembers he remembers when he went to the next town. He basically got driven out of town in Philippi. And when he went to the next town, the Philippian church that was just constituted sent supplies, sent people, sent resources to help Paul in the next town over. And then when he left that region, the northern region of Greece called Macedonia, and went to the southern region and ended up in Corinth, they, they again continued to find ways to supply, to hold the rope And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and this gives a description of how Paul saw the church in Philippi. Now, he's talking to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth is wealthier than the church in Philippi, and he's trying to get this church to be generous, specifically to send some money back to the home church in Jerusalem. And so he says, okay, how can I motivate these people to be generous? I'll show a video. And he doesn't have the video capacity, so he just pulls out a story of the people in Philippi. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Now, that's really the church at Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, even though they were being tested, they were being afflicted, their abundance of joy... And in their extreme poverty have overflowed in, we, in a wealth of generosity on their part. So even though they're, they're experiencing affliction, they are living in extreme poverty. Even in those conditions, they have a, a wealth of generosity towards the gospel. Notice verse 3, "...for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and then beyond their means." They gave according to their means. I make so much money at the end of the month, I see what's left over, I give. That's according to my means. That's, I just see what's left over and I, I kind of give it out of my wealth. It's not really costing me anything. And Paul is saying, well, not only did they, they do that, they actually gave out of their poverty. This is, I'm giving first to the Lord. I see how much money I make and say, this is what needs to go to the Lord. This is what I I think is most important about my life. And so I I give out of my poverty, not out of my wealth. Begging us, verse 4, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's just an incredible testimony their their joy is, is can't be contained so they're finding ways to say how can I partner with somebody who's going down in, down into the pit? How can I hold the rope? And I'm going to I'm going to give. I'm not going to just give out of my wealth. I'm not going to give what's just left over. I'm going to give so that it costs me something. Cuz I know the gospel costs God something. And I want to remember that cost by the way that I give. You think about this little passage that Paul picks out in 2 Corinthians to highlight the Philippians giving. And you think about Jesus sitting at the Temple Mount. And all these wealthy people are coming forward and dropping their change into these brass containers. And of course when a lot of change goes in, every head goes up. And, and Jesus isn't—he doesn't catch that at all but here's a little whisper of two copper coins going in. Disciples, hey, watch this. Watch this right here. This is the person who's really giving. See, they could have been overwhelmed by uh, the amount of things that people are giving. And he says, no, I want you to be overwhelmed by the way in which somebody's giving, not just the amount. And it's this widow who's giving all that she has, and this is a total display of her trust in the Lord. That's what he is wanting. That's what Paul is saying is happening with the church at Philippi. What a, what a motivational video. They, they see their lives intertwined. Paul is not just somebody who's out there doing something. No, their lives are somehow intertwined with Paul's. They're taking part in and so that's what Paul is asking for us is for us to, to take part in. Now, there might be a few of us here who are going to be going down into the pit. You're going to have that heart of missions, and you want to go find the place, the dark corner of the world, or even in our community to say, I'm that person. But but all the Philippians couldn't leave Philippi and go to Corinth, so they said, how can we partner with, how can we join with, how can we give of ourselves, give of our finances to help somebody? And they saw their lives as intertwined. So I wanted to take a minute just to show this really great little video. It's from Dave Ramsey, and it's part of trying to get out of debt so you can really be a giver. Instead of giving your money away for interest or credit cards or student loans, you can give it to the purposes of the Lord. And I love, but this, what I love about this video is how this man finds or begins to discover how his life is intertwined with other lives. Let's take a look.
1: You know how sometimes it feels like life just happens? You know, just random things seem to fill your day. Things with little or no consequence to anyone else. I mean, I know God's in control of my life, but I never really saw how much he was weaving my story with other people's stories, and really, into his story. Well, that's all changed. It was a cold day, the kind where you really don't want to have some long conversation outside with someone especially with someone you don't really know, but that's exactly what God had in mind. Amy and I had just eaten lunch at Dumplings downtown Franklin, and we were walking to the car and we see this couple that I thought I recognized from church. It would have been awkward just to walk by them and not say anything, so we stopped and said hey and did the whole yeah, yeah, you guys go to fellowship thing, whatever. Well, we start talking and the whole Dave Ramsey thing comes up. They asked us where we were in the process, and I told him that so far we paid off 60000 but still had $10,000 left to go. They asked us what we would do when we were debt-free, and I laughed and told him, well, I told my kids I'd buy them a trampoline, what we really wanted to adopt, and we committed to being debt-free before we did. The whole conversation only lasted about three minutes. It was like, nice to meet you. That was random. Well, the next day that random person shows up at my office with this brand new trampoline. I couldn't believe it. It was like my kids are going to freak. I set it up that night, and my kids jumped on that thing for four hours. I mean, we didn't even know these people. They didn't have to do that. I mean, really, that's pretty generous. Well, the next day, I get an email from the same lady saying, Oh, you guys seem like a sharp couple, and we'd love to come by and talk to you about something. I emailed her back and said, that sounds like a multi-level marketing proposal, and if it was, we really weren't interested. Of course, she says it's not that sort of deal, but she was really persistent. She even called Amy. Amy had been sick, and it really wasn't a great time to have company over. Our house is a wreck, and we didn't feel like picking it up. We said everything short of, please don't come over to my house. So they show up, and I'm like, here we go. Let's get this over with. Don't say yes to anything. I couldn't believe they sunk their claws into us with that trampoline to get us involved in some pyramid scheme. Anyway, so we small talk for about five minutes, and then right when I thought they were about to drop the bomb, they did, but it wasn't the bomb I was expecting. So the lady says, well we told you we'd only be a few minutes, and I really don't know how to say this, but we want to pay off your $10,000 left in debt so you guys can adopt. She pulls out her checkbook and goes, how do you spell your guys' names? What? Are you kidding me? Are you for real? I mean, who does that? Who writes somebody a check for $10,000 and gives it to people they don't even know? So they give us a check and they said, just don't act weird around us at church and just don't tell anybody it was us. And they drove off. I mean, Amy and I stood there for 10 minutes in total shock. And we cried and we screamed. And we ran all over the yard and the house. Unbelievable. I mean, seriously, it was beyond belief. We realized nine months later when we brought Malaya home, the check they wrote us was dated nine months prior to Malaya's due date. They gave us that money right about the time our daughter was conceived. It was like God was saying, I have a baby out there for you right now. I'm not waiting around another two years for you to pay off that debt. We felt called to adopt, but we simply couldn't afford to do it on our own. We found that this random couple had already adopted four children and felt a calling to continue to serve through adoption. Rather than bringing more children into their home, they decided to help others adopt. It didn't just happen. It wasn't random at all. God knew his plan. He had just invited us to walk with him through this process. He was weaving our callings, our stories together for us to love and to care for each other, to make a beautiful tapestry for His glory. Thank you, Jesus.
0: Now, I've watched that video like ten times and tried to cry everything out so that when I get up and talk about it, I'm not crying, but I'm there like, Paul, control yourself, my friend. You know how it ends. I mean... But isn't that awesome that this couple just, they, they could see our lives are going to weave together with some other lives somehow. And they have the capacity, they have the generosity, they have the willingness to give. For a couple who's going to own and, and care for and shepherd a little girl's soul for the rest of their lives, that's, that's, that's quite a commitment. And so I, my prayer for us is that when we see this text in Philippians and we notice Paul pointing out how these people had a welling up of generosity in order to, to be partners with, that you and I would feel the same sense of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And when we do look at things from the world that seem attractive or maybe they seem necessary It would help us to maybe reorient, reorient our thinking in terms of eternal value. And everyone here, small or large way, can hold the rope. It won't be the same. Some people are going to give two copper coins. Some people can give more. But everyone can say, I'm holding the rope somehow for somebody who's going into a dark place. God is using the people in Philippi to be partners with Paul. The second thing that Paul wants the Philippians to realize is that the gift is really pleasing to God, not just to Paul. I mean, Paul is saying in uh, verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit. I mean, it was kind of you, he says in verse 14, to share in my trouble, but I want you to know I'm not really just seeking the gift. What I see is this fruit, this fruit of the gospel in your life that actually is accredited to your account by God. It's pleasing to God. It's like these Old Testament sacrifices where the aroma comes up to God and he's pleased by it. What what makes Paul's heart explode is the sacrificial display of the giving, not the gift itself. Because he knows if these people are really willing to sacrifice their finances, what is Jesus remember what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. See, it's a, a connection. He's saying, I see your heart here. I see how when you give away of yourself, especially your finances, it's showing something of your heart. This fruit is is proof of the gospel in your life. And their trust in God is and their priority on the gospel. It's pleasing to God. One of the char- characteristics of Christ Community Church, really from the very beginning, has been its history of generosity. I was thinking about this because it's March, and in March we launched Christ Community Church in 2002. And so it was about 19 years ago today, we had our very first church service, which is at Temple Baptist Activity Center, which is now the YMCA, just about a mile from here. And I have a lot of memories of that particular day. I remember uh, that that was my very first sermon I ever delivered on a Sunday morning. And I don't remember anything about that sermon, (laughs) and I probably wouldn't repeat too much of it because it was so poorly constructed, I'm sure, as my very first sermon. But I remember being in the hallway, and Nancy, my wife, was going to be in charge of the nursery that day, and I thought, I'd do anything to trade places with you right now. (laughs) And when you want to trade places with somebody in the nursery, that is really saying something. I remember another wonderful moment that we didn't have any musicians, and so I decided to just lead us a cappella in a song, and that's not a great memory for the people who were there, but it's, it's a really good memory that I have and I share with my family, and I remember one of the biggest questions I had about starting the church was finances. I felt like I had done the Young Life thing, and I knew how it operated, both in terms of ministry and finances. But this was something new. This felt like I'm asking my wife and my kids, let's jump off a cliff. And I just had to pray that there would be people there that would hold the rope. I didn't know them. I didn't know if it was possible. I didn't know if it was going to happen. I didn't know if it was God's will, but I was hoping that that was the case. And that very first Sunday, somebody gave a check. I don't know who it was for $5,000. And it was like God saying, Paul, hey, you don't worry about the money. You worry about the word. That, that's all I'm calling you to do. If you do that, I'll worry about the other parts of what you're missing right now. And so for 19 years, people have been incredibly generous. But in 2020 things just exploded in ways that I couldn't even have imagined especially with covid in January of 2020 we paid off our 1 million dollar debt on the building so now we're debt free then covid hit and we sort of tried to close down every avenue of expenses cuz we just didn't know what was going to happen and i'm sure you did the same in your own personal budget but at the end of the year we had an 18% giving increase now most years we might have four or five percent. So in this year of COVID we had eighteen percent increase. It was incredible. And then if I look at the finances to date for twenty twenty one, we're forty five percent above our record year last year. Forty five if if you said four or five percent more, no it's forty five percent more. And that doesn't even count the gift of Trinity Church, which with the real estate and the money, it's worth $2 million. It's just been an incredible explosion. And I want you to know how thankful I am, how thankful the elders are, how thankful the staff are. But really what makes our heart explode is not the money. It's the It's the thing that's increasing to your account because you've prioritized the gospel. You're saying, these are the things that are most important. This is how I want to steward my money. So it's part of what's God's plan. It's This video played out in a hundred different little ways, some of which you'll see, some of which you'll know, and many that you'll never know that people have been touched by your giving. That's what is pleasing to God. And that is what I celebrate and praise the Lord for, not just for the generosity. I am, like Paul, saying, it is kind of you to share in our trouble. It is kind of you to hold the rope as I jump off the cliff. But really what I'm excited about is how it's a display of the gospel. And I want you to know that God is pleased. Third P, verse 19, this great promise, one of the best verses in the whole book. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is going to provide. I want to think about this, and maybe this isn't how you think when you read the Bible. But when I read this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, here's my main question. How is it that back in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and, what does it say, need. When I read that, I want to lean into the text and ask this question, if God supplies for every need, why does Paul need to learn how to be in need? Now, you're saying, I would have never thought about that, Paul, but now you've introduced this difficult question. But that's how I think. I think Paul's telling us, I've had to learn how to be in need. And then seven verses later, I don't think he's just forgotten that he just said it. And he's going to say, I want you to know, God's going to provide for your every need. How how are these two things Push together, And this is the way I would answer, maybe more importantly, the way I think the Bible answers, that Paul understands there's two different levels of need. And probably you understand it as well, but I want to make sure it's clear in your mind, because if it's not clear in your mind, you can have some confusion. There's what I'm going to call first story needs and foundational needs. There's first story needs or surface needs, or you might say physical needs, And then there's foundational needs that are soul needs. They're not surface needs. They're underneath the surface. They're your soul. And Paul has has to learn to live with first story needs. That's what he's saying to us in verse 12. You're going to have to learn with learn to live with first story needs. Sometimes you're going to have a lot, some of your times you're going to have a little. These are all on the first story. They, they do they do mean something or they could create pain. He's not trying to minimize it. He's just saying you're going to have to learn to live in that first story, but the way you live in that first story is that you know your soul does not have a need. And that gives you the power and the strength to live through these first-story real needs. And I just want to illustrate it by going back to John chapter 4. And you can turn back there if you want or if you just want to listen. I'm not going to read through the text. It's a pretty popular, well-known story where Jesus is traveling through the the area of Israel and he comes to a region called Samaria. And he sits down by a well and he's thirsty. He has a first-story need. And he sends his disciples away to get lunch and while he's sitting by this well he doesn't have any way to get water out of the well and fortunately for him a woman comes by who's got a water jar. And he talks to the woman and he says if if you could give me a drink I would appreciate it. And they begin to have this little conversation and what Jesus discovers is that this woman she has a soul thirst. She's coming to get her first story thirst quenched. But she, Jesus discovers she has a foundational thirst. Her soul is in a desert. She had given herself to man after man after man. And for whatever reason, we don't know, these men continue to reject her. And she doesn't know she can actually be loved. She doesn't think she can be a beloved person. So her soul is thirsty for someone to come by and love her like she's been hoping for in some way. And so Jesus says, if you ask me for a drink, see, I've been asking you for a drink. But woman, if you would ask me for a drink, I will give you the kind of water where you're never going to be thirsty again. You see what Jesus is doing? He's taking the surface need and saying, I'm trying to address a soul thirst that you have. I'm not as concerned about your physical thirst as your foundational thirst. That you can truly be loved by me, your creator. I think we understand this, do we not? That we do have these surface needs. They are real. You get thirsty. You feel pain. You have to learn how to live in those places. You have a great financial year. You have to learn to live in abundance. And you have a, a drought. You have to learn to live in that drought. The, the, the year you get married, you, you live in that honeymoon st- phase. The year your spouse dies, you have to learn to live in that pain. Those are all real needs. And the way Jesus is saying you live in that place is your soul is not thirsty. You, you have taken a drink from a stream that's under the surface stream. And just like the psalmist says in Psalm 1, I'm a tree planted by a stream of water. So even when it's out of season, I have green leaves. Just to make sure everyone understands, Jesus does the same thing in the same story. The disciples come back and they say, Jesus, you need to eat. First story. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And they start looking around, did somebody give them some food? You see, he's talking on this deeper level. He's trying to help them understand, yes, I am hungry. I do have these thirst and hungers. But I want you to know, disciples, the most important thing isn't that first story hunger. It's the second foundational hunger. And I have that food to eat. And my food, he says, is to, the, to, do, to do the will of God. Now let's just listen to this carefully. Jesus' sole food was to follow God's word. And if he seeks first the kingdom of God, all these things, all other things are added unto him. And I want us to make sure we understand this. Part of God's will for Jesus would be for him to experience real first story needs part of God's plan for Jesus is for him to experience real first story thirsts hunger and pain God wasn't abandoning him in those things that was part of God's plan But the way Jesus went through those things, was able to manage himself in those times, is that he had a soul that wasn't thirsty. He had the stream underneath the stream. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about here. When we look at verse 12 and verse 19, he's saying, I want you to know that I've learned how to live in need, first story. But I want you to know my God can provide for all of your needs, this soul thirst, so that when you feel these first story needs, they don't throw you off. You don't think God's abandoned you. And my question for us, and I really want us to think about this today as you leave do you, do you know of this stream under the surface stream of your life? Can, can you tap into that stream so that when the surface things are going in chaos, you can say, I can stand here, I can remain here, I can be not in need because my soul has been thirst, has been quenched with the glorious riches of Christ? Now, I'm sorry to say I don't have time to answer today how you do that. My question is just, do you understand the difference between these two needs? If you don't understand the difference of these two needs, here's two things, and I'll close here, that I think could cause you problems. If you don't understand that there's differences between these two needs, and you read just verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in, the glory, in glory in Christ Jesus. If you don't really understand he's talking about a soul need, you'll say at some point in your life, and it'll be a painful point in your life, well, Jesus isn't meeting my first story need. So what good is he? And you'll walk away. When I was 23 and my mother was dying of cancer, that was my prayer. God, you're not meeting this need. What more obvious need could there be? What more obvious answer could there be? I had these long, angry discussions with God. This is, I'm reading the verse. Why aren't you doing that? And I was living on the first story saying, God, you've got to match every first story need. And when you don't, especially when it's hard, you're not worth following. And many people at that moment, if they don't understand, there's another stream underneath that could water your soul so that you could get through that moment. If you don't know that moment, you're going to walk away. And many people come to church and they just live on the first story. They have real meaningful needs. Again, I'm not trying to minimize, but what Paul is saying is, do you understand there's food to eat that this world doesn't know anything about? If you don't understand the difference between the two, you could walk away in a painful event. If you don't understand the difference between the two, you'll take surface solutions and try to stuff them in your soul. I just don't make enough money. I just don't have a boyfriend. I just don't. I mean, whatever it is. Again, I'm not minimizing these things, but when you try to take a surface thing and stuff it in to feed your soul, it doesn't work. You constantly be frustrated. God has met all of my needs, your needs, in Christ. It's the needs of your soul. And I just want you to spend a few minutes, even it's just a few minutes. Do you know the stream underneath the surface stream? When you're hungry and thirsty, when you're dying on a cross and scream out, I thirst, can you live in that moment because your soul isn't thirsty? It's been met by Jesus. Let's pray together. There's so so much content in this little ending of a letter. And again, I don't know what's the one thing you want any person here to walk away with, but my, my prayer is they would know this stream. They would give in a way that is pleasing to you. That they would partner with people with you. That they would hold the rope. So that as we all come together and see our stories woven together from beginning to end. We'll, we'll see how we participated with our life. With our talent. With our time. Would you bless us with your wisdom and discernment today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.